0: Hello and welcome to episode 154. Today we're going to be talking about our response to the incredible advances that we're seeing from, in particular, large language models in AI at the moment, tools like ChatGPT, how to manage our mental and emotional game. And I usually write down the things that I say at the beginning and the end of the show because I think you're entitled to some polish, to A modicum of of grammar. I'm not doing that this time, and I think you'll see why. I received an email message that's representative of how a great many people are feeling at the moment and have communicated to me privately. And I'm going to read it. I'm not going to identify who sent it for obvious reasons. And this person said, I don't know if this will be read or even responded to, but I'm not sure where else to turn. I've been anxious about the direction and implication of new AI rollouts, but this week has hit me hard. I'm in an absolute panic about the potential catastrophes racing towards us and picking up speed. I can't focus and feel like everything has been sucked out of me. Do you have advice how to deal with this impending sense of doom that keeps growing larger? So first of all, I want to say thank you for writing to me and putting into words what so many people are feeling right now. And I have responded to this person already by private email, of of course. And first, I want to say that as much as you're going through and as difficult as it is, I'm not worried about you because you're dealing with it in a very powerful and proactive way. You wrote down how you're feeling and you reached out to someone. And that's an excellent coping strategy. So as difficult as this is for you, I can see that you've got some really good life skills for being resilient in the face of this incredible disruption that we're all experiencing. If this podcast is about anything, it's about how to deal with disruption that we face from artificial intelligence. And disruption can be positive and negative. It sounds, on the whole, negative, but... It's still a good word for the incredible opportunities that are being presented as well, which we mustn't lose sight of. But when we're faced with the unknown, then that increases our fear for understandable reasons. There are two ways that we can experience the unknown in our lives. One is when it disrupts us and causes the kind of upheaval like we're seeing right now with technology. Another is when we, say, decide to go backpacking in the Amazon or up the Himalayas, and we prepare for something that we may have never done before, don't know what to expect. But it's exciting. So I like to say that the difference between exploration and disruption is that exploration is when you visit the unknown, disruption is when the unknown visits you. And the difference is agency. Do you feel some sense of control? And our writer here has expressed how they feel a lack of control, which is common to so many people. A line I have in my TEDx talk that's coming out soon is that people on the outside of the technology bubble feel like they're in the backseat of a car being driven 100 miles an hour by a teenager who's texting their friends, chugging a Red Bull and turning around to yell, I have no idea where we're going, but isn't it fun? See, that's what it's like when you're not in charge of the technology, not developing the technology that's causing all these incredible changes at the moment. It feels powerless in a way. And this is amplified incredibly by the media, which loves nothing more than to scare the crap out of you. In fact, that's the business model of most media. So if the source of your existential anxiety is the fear that's Been talked about in the media that AI is going to destroy the human race, then I'd say take some deep breaths, get out into nature. The trees, the birds, the clouds are still there. They were there yesterday, they'll be there tomorrow. See if they have a message for you. Now, if you've been following this show or my books, then you know that the question about existential threat from artificial intelligence is not a completely empty one. We've discussed it before, we all talk about it again, and there are some very smart, capable people who spend most of their time considering what to do about this. But if thinking about that fills you with dread and impairs your ability to function at your best, then you're not in a position to join them because you can't bring the sort of resources that you're capable of exerting to that issue. So if that's the sort of catastrophe that you, the writer, had in mind here, then please know that at the moment, Black Mirror is still fiction, coming up on its sixth season, by the way. And while it has immense value in stretching our imagination in productive and unusual directions, if it's scary, and it is, it should only be so in the sense of watching a Halloween movie or going on a roller coaster, the sort of scary that you can set aside afterwards, and otherwise you enjoy it for the time that you're participating in it. Now, if you've been consuming media that is one-sided or weighted overwhelmingly towards the negative aspects of what's going on with artificial intelligence at the moment, I'd say time to find some other choices, because the positive benefits of what's happening right now are at least as great as the potential negative impacts. And they may not get as much press, they may not be as quotable, as soundbiteable, but their impact on us is potentially much, much larger. Take, for instance, AlphaFold, a deep learning model from DeepMind that a few years ago increased our knowledge of the number of proteins whose structures we knew a thousandfold. That's not a typo. It took us from knowing the structure of 190,000 proteins to 200 million. And the only reason they stopped there was that's all the ones that we know about. And where those previous ones had been gained at the cost of great expense, typically the benchmark was a million dollars or a PhD thesis to get a protein structure. These were done in a couple of weeks. The impact of that, the consequences, ramifications, the potential benefit for that has, I think, not been given nearly adequate attention, partly because I think every molecular biologist was taken by surprise, and we just haven't assimilated or considered the potential benefit of knowing all this, because DeepMind put all that structure in the public domain where everyone can get at it. But you can certainly safely speculate that this is going to cause a revolution in our treatment of cancer and many other diseases. And the data that could give us that is here now. It's not a speculation. It's not a guess as to the performance of some future technology. We have it now. Of course, a lot of the anxiety around ChatGPT and large language models surrounds what they might do to jobs. And once again, the media loves to talk about how people's jobs will be replaced by tools like this. Now, that's not a useful framing, but addressing this question accurately... It takes a lot more words than saying you're going to lose your job to an AI. Of course, we can see that ChatGPT is doing things that six months ago, people, including myself, thought were much further away in the capability of what artificial intelligence would be able to do. And many of those things fall into a category that we've explored many times on this show, of things that humans do that feel like a creative expression that is uniquely human. And in the past, we've thought that about playing chess, about playing Go, about winning Jeopardy, only to see AIs repeatedly exceed our best people in those fields. Now, that's not to take away from their accomplishments. That's not putting down their expertise and ability in any way. You might want to listen to an earlier episode where we had chess grandmaster Jonathan Rowson on the show. For a human to be a chess grandmaster still requires the pinnacle of human cognitive ability and strategizing. And an AI that beats that grandmaster at chess is not doing that. It has a different way of winning at chess. Well, what ChatGPT is showing us is that the same applies to writing a term paper, or an article, or passing the bar exam. For a human to do these things requires a high level of intelligence, knowledge, and capability. An AI that arrives at the same level of competence in those instruments is not doing it the same way that we do. It's following its ability to create sophisticated patterns. But of course that doesn't matter if it still comes up with a better answer anyway. You could say that still puts us in second place. What are we going to do about it? If you've heard me editorialize enough times, you know that one of my recurring themes is that AI gives us the opportunity to get to know ourselves better, to examine our own beliefs and processes. And for many years now, I've been saying do that before the arrival of advanced AI forces the question on you. And Now, what we're seeing is that question is being forced on a lot of people that weren't prepared for it. That question or questions being what is it that makes you human? What do you value? Why are you here? What's your purpose? Now, if your purpose has been to write short articles and blogs about today's news, you may very well feel that AI is sidelining you when someone can say, write a 500 word blog article about cryptocurrency. And ChatGPT turns out something perfectly serviceable. There's no question about that. Humans can do a better job, certainly, at the expense of a great deal more time and expertise. But content that is in the lower range of the bell curve that's uh, not the top quality output can now be produced many, many times faster and easier and cheaper using a large language model which doesn't bode well for the people who were writing things in that part of the bell curve. And you might say, Peter, this is not making me feel better yet. Well, you know that the purpose of us on this show is to examine things honestly, not optimistically, not pessimistically, but realistically. So we don't shy away from any truth or conclusion that might have negative impacts for some people because the first rule is to deal with reality. But it's also apparent to me that the market for that content is going to change radically. The fact that we can use ChatGPT to now produce a thousand times as much content for the same cost as we had before does not mean that that's a sustainable model, because there is not one thousand times demand. You can't read a thousand blogs a day. So before long, we will be awash in content of a quality that we would once have considered good, but by those standards will then be mediocre. And the content that is better than that will still be the one that's being generated by humans or most likely by humans assisted by AI. And that brings me to talking about some of those instruments of assessment like bar exams that ChatGPT was scoring in the bottom 10% of and then GPT-4, went to scoring in the top 10%. By the way, I will use ChatGPT as the sort of generic moniker because it's got a lot of traction and mindshare behind it now, but as you know, it's already been superseded by GPT-4. So if I say ChatGPT, I just mean the latest iteration of whatever OpenAI or any of the other companies producing large language model chatbots is. So it does the fact that we now have AIs that can easily score the passing grade in the bar exam mean that we're going to have AI lawyers. That doesn't seem right, does it? And it isn't, because there are other things that are missing. The thing is that we don't test for those things because they're harder to test. Those include, perhaps, obviously, the ability to study a judge and jury and address them and connect with them. Those are important qualities for many lawyers, but they're not on the bar exam as far as I know, because they're very hard to measure. And the bar exam is intended to provide a precise measurement of the abilities of lawyers so that firms can decide who they want to hire. Makes the decision easy and objective for them. But in order to do that, you've got to reduce those abilities to numbers. And so that's why we have the bar exam. And in other fields, the GRE the SAT, the A-levels, and so forth. But those instruments of assessment are not measuring the thing that we really want in those people. It's not measuring the ability of a lawyer to win a case. It's just measuring what we can measure. Now, up until this point, that hasn't mattered because any human that became a good enough lawyer to pass the bar exam was good enough at all the other things that we need a lawyer to be. Just like... A grandmaster of chess has high-level human cognitive capabilities of general intelligence. But now we have AI that isn't human, of course, and it doesn't follow the same rules, so it can pass the bar exam, but that doesn't make it a good lawyer. It does, however, make it an excellent tool for lawyers, and an excellent tool in so many other fields as well, which is why... It makes those decisions that some people are making to ban its use so, so short-sighted. Schools in Australia, for instance, banned the use of ChatGPT there. And I've got to say, this is a terrible, terrible decision. Your job is to prepare kids to enter a workforce with the skills that they're going to need there. And they're going to be entering into jobs where people are already using ChatGPT. To get that job done better. Content writers who are using ChatGPT and have learned how to get it to do its best job of ideation, brainstorming, structuring, outlining, filling in a document, and then finally editing it and adding that human touch. And you're going to send students out to compete against them without any knowledge of how to use that tool? This is like preparing them to have careers in science and engineering, without being allowed to use a calculator or a computer for mathematics. That was a battle in the 70s, and we know what happened to that, for the obvious reasons. If a school bans its students from using ChatGPT, it means one of two things. It means either we think that there is nothing to whatever job you might go into that could be performed by a human as well as ChatGPT, or in addition to what ChatGPT does, or it means... We don't know how to teach you what those things are that are uniquely human, the value that you can add that ChatGPT cannot. Now, I think the second one is a more likely explanation, and I get it. I sympathize. If you've spent 150 years assessing students by their ability to pass an examination that depends upon, for instance, essay writing, to have that rug yanked away from you in the space of a month is very disrupting. But hey, it's your job to prepare children for tomorrow's world, not yesterday's. So figure out what those skills are that humans add to the value that they can generate with ChatGPT and teach those. Figure out how to assess and measure those. My gut tells me that you're not going to be able to measure those by any sort of numeric standardized instrument that we've used in the past because pretty much by definition, that's going to be the sort of thing that ChatGPT can be trained on to easily exceed human performance. It's going to take something else. But it's your job, again, as a school, to figure that out. But don't think of this as some frontal assault on the fortifications of education. Think of the incredible opportunity this represents. In the same way that we can achieve so much more now in science and engineering by using calculators and computers, how much more will we be able to achieve once we've found out the best way to use tools like ChatGPT for getting whatever it is that we need to do done better and faster? The whole way that we generate and assimilate information could be changing radically. I saw this great two-panel comic strip where both panels had someone working at a computer with someone else standing behind them and the person on the computer was saying something to that person and in one panel, the person was saying, AI lets me turn this bullet point into a whole long email that I can pretend that I wrote. And in the other panel, the person is saying, AI can produce a summary of this really long email that I can pretend that I read. And of course, what makes that... So much funnier is that it's already happening. Well, if AI can do that, then maybe the potential is there for communicating much more efficiently and effectively with each other. We're barely scratching the surface of what that could mean. Of course, a lot is going to have to shake out to get to any place like stability in that future. And there will inevitably be some casualties in the workforce along the way. 50 years ago, a good typist could make a decent living as an administrative assistant or typing up, for instance, movie scripts or novels or other content for people because typing was a tedious thing that required some skill to do quickly. You can go back to, say, magazines for writers from the period and see the back pages filled with ads for people offering their skills to do smooth typing of manuscripts. The advent of the word processor meant that largely went away because now the people who wanted the thing typed could type it themselves and get an accurate, clean output easily enough. It took them a little more work, but that work was worth it compared to the expense and time of giving that job to someone else. So typist it's not a great job to have these days. Just like how a few decades before that we had human computers. The term computer was first used to apply to a person, usually female, sitting in a room at a desk where there were many other such people working on calculations with pencil and paper and passing their results to each other as though they were, in effect, a large computer chip made out of people instead of transistors. They were mostly female because women were Good at math and also had the patience to do this kind of work for hours on end. Notably, for instance, at Bletchley Park in World War II when they were doing some of the calculations used for cracking the cryptography used by the axis. And obviously that job doesn't exist any longer either. It's easier for someone to punch numbers into a calculator than it is for them to write those down and give them to a room full of people. And certainly there are equivalents to that today, probably mostly around content generation. Think how much media has historically been run by an editor of some kind who would toss off an instruction like, I need 1,200 words by Saturday to go in this column of an article explaining how hard it is for office workers who sit in a chair all day to lose weight. Go. They decided what sort of content they wanted in that space, and then some writer would go off and sweat for a few hours to churn out something that was informative, entertaining, and inspiring. That work can now be done in 30 seconds by ChatGPT. Of course, initially, it will take some time for all the editors to get the memo, and in the meantime, there will be people who are writers that respond to the usual request from their editors, use ChatGPT to write the article, and then go and work for four editors at the same time and make a lot more money. And that's been documented as a thing that's already happening. Eventually, the whole content ecosystem is going to find a new equilibrium. But in the meantime, there's a big, big, big shakeup just starting. If you're a writer of that kind of content, it's time to have a close look at what is it that you really, really like doing. Is it producing content like that? Is it something that you're drawn to getting better at? that you would do even if you weren't getting paid for it. If I said, for instance, hey, do you like ice cream? And let's say that you do. And I say, well, over here, I've got a machine that eats ice cream better than you or anyone else. No drips, less slurping. Perfect job of nibbling around the cone. Do you stop eating ice cream just because a machine can do it better than you? It's an imperfect analogy. Not many people get paid for eating ice cream. But the point is that if you're going to stay in an industry that's going to become a lot more competitive, a lot harder to make a living at, is it because that's where your heart is or because that's where you have historically felt you needed to be to make a living? So to return to the email that I received that started all this, the impending sense of doom that you mentioned is a really good Description of fear of the unknown. Now, I'm a certified coach, and if I were coaching you, I would probably pick on that phrase and say, Well, what does that mean to you? Because it sounds like an abstraction that is something that's keeping you powerless by virtue of its very nebulosity, its very vagueness. And that when we pick away at it and say, Well, what exactly does that mean? What Precisely is the thing that you're afraid of. That the more concrete and specific that we can get about that, the less power it has to cause anxiety. And dealing with your emotional state is the most important thing to do at a time of uncertainty about the future, because you need to be your most resourceful self to face a new challenge. And that kind of improvement is driven more by focusing within than it is by any kind of information or learning about the external world, as useful as that can be. So if it takes turning off the news, going out to the beach, going and stroking a cat, whatever it takes to get back to being your best self, then that's job one. And recognize that you're not alone. Probably a million people around the world would describe the way they feel right now in the same kind of words. Even people like me are facing challenges. We're, as futurists, supposed to be on top of what's happening in AI, but the rate at which new applications are coming out based upon the chat GPT interface is just impossible for anyone to keep up with. There are people who are pretending they are, but they're not. No one can do it. We need an AI to actually track those things for us and be our intelligent interface for it, which means I assume that there are six startups working on doing that right now and they'll probably get... Boatload of venture capital thrown at them. By the way, I should say, at some point in this podcast or others, you're probably thinking, okay, when is he going to tell us that this was all written by ChatGPT? No, it isn't. And uh, as I've said before, that's getting increasingly undefendable. It sounds like I'm making my job harder than it needs to be. But I think you'll agree that in this episode, it was important to be as much me as possible no matter how long it took. And it did take a while to produce this episode. So suppose you've been considering what I've been saying and thinking, well, that's all very well, but this is short-term thinking. Eventually, these things are going to get good enough to replace us, no matter what we're doing. What about the long term? Doesn't it look bleak in the far future? Well, here's an optimistic take on that. And I'm going to walk that back, not that it's not optimistic, but that you know, if you've listened to me talk about this before, that I don't like those labels, optimistic and pessimistic, because they're both distortions of reality. One of them is distorted towards a positive, and one of them is distorted towards a negative, but neither of them is acknowledging what's real. I prefer to be realistic. So a more accurate interpretation of what I'm about to say would be, this is a positive outcome that... You may not have considered yet, and it has to do with what we can do in the future with brain-computer interfaces. Now, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I've had a few on the show, and I've run this by some of them, and they agree that in in general, it's doable. And that is that we are seeing increasingly capable results of AI being able to essentially read thoughts, reconstruct images that people are looking at or even thinking about, reconstruct words that people are thinking about, in other words, reading minds for certain values of reading minds. And the reason that we're getting so successful at that isn't that we've learned how to decode how the brain stores these thoughts, because we haven't. We don't know that. But the AI has been something that we can train to recognize those patterns from the patterns of brain waves. Well, these are very early days in the development of this technology. And I think it's entirely reasonable to think that as it gets better, that we will be able to recognize, to decode more complex and abstract thoughts from human brains into AI. And that even if it might not be possible immediately to recognize thoughts as abstract, as recidivism or recursion. That wouldn't matter because what I'm thinking about for the application is taking what the AI has absorbed, recognized from one human brain, and sending it out in a signal across another brain-computer interface to another human brain. In other words, computer-mediated communication. And on the receiving end, we can Leverage the neuroplasticity of the human brain for it, the human receiver, to train him or herself on receiving and interpreting those signals. This is how humans who have been blind have trained themselves to be able to see via a neural implant that's sending signals in a rectilinear array, like pixels, into the human brain. Of course, human brain doesn't organize the way it sees the world through an array of neurons arranged in a grid, but it can learn to interpret signals that do come in that way in terms of the pixels, if you will, of an image. Well, maybe that human brain could then learn to recognize concepts as abstract as recidivism and recursion. And then what we will have built Is a way of communicating directly from one human brain to another without the cumbersome intervening language and having to take words from one mouth and go through the air into someone else's ears. I think it's wildly conservative to say that we could do this in 30 years. I think we could do it in 10 years if we get out and push a bit. I think the difference between it taking 30 years and 10 years is not technology, not money but will. I think with the right combination of people and venture capital and willpower and a little bit of luck, this could happen in 10 years. So what difference does it make to be able to do that? And I think about the times that I interview someone and they start out a bit hesitant because they're like, who is this guy? I haven't heard of him. I saw a bit of the resume and they don't know who exactly they're talking to and how much work they're going to have to go through to be understood, to make what they do, their expertise, their domain of knowledge, go through the airwaves and into my brain and come out on the other side the way that it started out in their brain. And so I make a special effort to study them and their discipline and speak to them from that basis. And at some point, then I see something after I say something that makes them realize Hey, this guy gets me he speaks my language i don't have to translate what i'm saying and then they relax and just speak their mind and then the conversation takes off like it's on afterburner well with direct brain-to-brain communication you would start off way beyond that point what consequences could that have well for one thing this podcast would be over in 30 seconds with brain-to-brain communication but that's presupposing a world that would be vastly different from the one we would get if we did have brain-to-brain communication. As to more fundamental and useful consequences, I was listening to the Lex Fridman podcast the other day, and he was talking with Chris Voss, the former FBI hostage negotiator who's written books about how to negotiate. And Chris said that every time he's got an opposing group together, groups that just haven't been able to get along, uh, but have to try and negotiate somehow, like, say, Israelis and Palestinians. He asks them, he says, we'll have this conversation, but here's the ground rules. Before you can take on, before you can oppose someone else's viewpoint, you have to tell them what their stand is, such that they agree that you've got it. You have to say, this is where I think you're coming from, and then they have to agree that you've got it right. And he said that no one could do that, that they couldn't see the other person's point of view in a way that that person agreed that they understood it. But think about the possibility that everyone, everywhere, could understand everyone else's point of view literally firsthand. And what would that mean for the future of conflict and misunderstanding on the planet? And now think that we could be 10 years away from the technology to make that possible. Is that not something worth sticking around for? So in the meantime, we've got to face this disruption and the world that we have going off, exploding in all kinds of random directions every day. I'm reminded of Douglas Adams, whose friend Robbie Stamp was on this show a few episodes back, who wrote about a book to turn to in times of need, That was called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and on the cover, in large friendly letters, it said, Don't panic, because that was the most important thing that you would need to know if you were reaching for the book. We don't have a real Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but I hope that this episode gets as close to that as possible, because that's the intent. And to quote from my favorite philosophy, Star Trek, The human adventure is just beginning. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, researchers at Stanford University and Google have created a miniature world like The Sims, like games that you may have seen with characters that walk around from buildings to open spaces and do some kind of action. My children play these kind of things. They populated this world with 25 characters that were controlled by ChatGPT and some of their code to live out their simulated lives independently with realistic kind of behavior. And they published what happened in their paper called Generative Agents, Interactive Simulacra of Human Behavior, and said that their generative agents wake up, cook breakfast, and head to work. Artists paint, authors write. They form opinions, notice each other and initiate conversations. They remember and reflect on days past as they plan the next day. They created an architecture that simulated minds with memories and experience and let the agents loose to perform these things, to interact with each other and with humans who are outside the game. They wrote, users can observe and intervene as agents plan their days, share news, form relationships, and coordinate group activities. They called the town that these agents interacted with Smallville. It all sounds just adorable. Each agent was created, if you will, by a prompt given to ChatGPT, for instance. One description was, John Lynn is a pharmacy shopkeeper at the Willow Market and pharmacy who loves to help people. He is always looking for ways to make the process of getting medication easier for his customers. John Lynn is living with his wife, Mae Lynn, who is a college professor, and son, Eddie Lynn, who is a student studying music theory. John Lynn loves his family very much. And what was instructive about this experiment was that there were emergent behaviors coming out of this that were not programmed or expected including uh, information diffusion, which means agents were telling each other information and it got spread around the town. Relationship memory, meaning that past interactions between agents were remembered and related later on. And coordination, like a Valentine's Day experiment involved one AI agent who was planning a Valentine's Day party and enrolled other people in assisting in making that happen, which was not something that they had expected to occur. And get this, 12 agents heard about the party through other people, but only five of them attended and three said that they were too busy. You can find a demonstration of this, a replay of activity, at a URL that I'll put in the show notes and transcript. Next week, my guest will be Ben Waitley, founder of Memrise, a platform for learning languages enhanced by the use of AI large language models. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U dot net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.